we spoke last week, we, we've been getting this whole idea of the fall series on radical change. We've been talking about the, the beginning mom, moments of, of Saul and the change that occurs in this man's life where he becomes Saul, the persecutor, and ultimately becomes Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles who just gives us so much of our, our New Testament and did, did so much to spread the, the good news of Jesus. His story, as we suggested, really has its roots in uh, an example that was set by a man named Stephen. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about Stephen, uh, not as commonly known of a figure, but an impressive, impressive leader in the early church. You know, uh, the apostles had a unique place in the early church those years immediately following the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Jesus there was still a community that was beginning to emerge. They weren't quite a church. They were more part of a larger expression of the Jewish faith. And they were advocating that Jesus was Yeshua, Jesus, Messiah, the one who had come. God's salvation had come. And that made them a bit of a, of a you know, sort of sect growing on the side, tolerated by some as long as they kept their place. But Stephen evidently began to argue more fervently for the fact that Jesus was, was the true promised one. And this created quite a stir in Jerusalem, and we, we spent a lot of time talking about that. It, but it got so heated that the, uh, the religious authorities at the time, in a moment of, of absolute, you know, just it seemed like this unthinking emotional response, they, they all, like, in, in a mob-like way, ran after Stephen, grabbed him, dragged him out of the city, and were told that they stoned him to death. And we, we talked about that and the impact of that death and what it would have been like. One of the, the reason that intersects with, with Saul is because Saul was a Pharisee. Saul was someone who was involved in the uh, group that was opposing Stephen. But um, we were given this verse that tells us that it's the first mention of Saul, and it's mentioned in this way. And I'm just going to put it up there again, Acts 7.58 says that uh, as they were stoning Stephen, and he becomes the first person actually put to death out of a confession for Christ. Uh, as they were stoning him, they, that they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. And there's, just, there's the first mention. Now, it wasn't like uh, Saul was you know, the, 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 just like, disconnected. I mean, a lot of times people think, oh, he was just some young guy. Well, he's, in his, he's probably in his 30s or 40s at this point. He's younger. But he's also, he's also someone who he's made a decision, Saul, not to literally stone Stephen. So he is not, he's not even going to take the chance of being lawless. That's the impression one gets. At the same time, he's extremely pleased with the outcome and is, is helping facilitate the process while the people who are doing the dirty work are taking care of business. And of course, it says that he was completely satisfied with the outcome, right? And um, in our mind's eye, we try to envision what that was like. Not the moment of Stephen being dragged out of the city and stoned to death, because it was, he would have been, a, by the time he was done, it was a mess. He was a pile of stones on a dead man's body. And uh, that, that was obvious. But the fact is, what was Saul doing during that time? Some people say, well, he was, he was yelling. He was saying, yeah, now you're getting what you deserve. I, I don't think that. I think that's actually probably unlikely. We don't know for sure, but it would seem to me that, 
he was more likely there watching in silence with this kind of perverse kind of grin, almost satisfied with the outcome. I've never done, I've never, he never threw a rock, but in his heart, he was completely happy with the outcome. Now these Nazarenes will learn that you don't push this thing too far. This is what happens. In his mind, Stephen deserved what he got. And one thing, though, is clear, that the bloody experience that occurred there seemed to trigger something in Saul. All of a sudden, there was like this unleash of violence in the man. And what was initially just a strong difference of opinion, all of a sudden, it's, there's a trigger point, and he turns a corner and decides he is going to become a hunter. And he is going to hunt down these followers of Jesus. Look with me, if you will, in Acts 8. I'm going to read this, Acts 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And then we're told that there was this great wave of persecution that began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. This is Acts 8, 1 through 3. And all the believers except the apostles were actually scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And there were some devout men, we're told, came in and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He, he went from house to house. And we're told here that he was indiscriminate in whether or not you were a, a man or a woman. He dragged everybody out and he put them into prison. So what happened was there was an escalation of Hatred towards these, uh, these followers of Jesus. Again, Paul completely despised Jesus. Felt that, that anybody who followed him was part of something that was going to undermine the truth of God's witness. Therefore, if they weren't going to, to pull back, they were going to need to be dealt with with a firm hand. We know later on that, that in his life he will talk to a king. And it's kind of difficult to appreciate this because I think there were two Two streams, I'll put it this way, two tides at work in the man. There's no question that something that was moving inside of him was hellish in nature. I would call it an evil tide. It was like a, almost, you could argue it was almost demonic. There was a, there was a, an inexplicable kind of hatred, violent hatred for the followers of Jesus or followers of the Nazarene. And that is one thing working inside of the man. On the other side, though, what we, we, can, we realize after his conversation with Christ that there was another tide at work. We'll call it a divine tide. And these two things are coming against each other. And that, in, that internal dissonance, that, that it fighting inside the man, which Jesus says, he'll say later on, it's hard for you, isn't it, to kick against this, isn't it? You're, you're a man fighting on the inside. I think... Part of what he was fighting against was what he saw happen with Stephen. The, uh, the inexplicable way, it, the illogical and I would argue unsettling way that Stephen had ended his life with his dying breaths. I, I think it really got into Saul. The, the implication is that when, well, we know what happens. I mean, in his final breath, Stephen, as he's dying, it says, Lord Jesus, you know, into your hands, I, I, you know, I commend my, I give you my spirit, Lord. But then with his final breaths, he says, and Lord, do not lay this sin under their charge. He intercedes for those who are killing him. And indirectly, he intercedes for Saul. And I think that there was something about that moment that, that the graciousness, the goodness, uh, the, the, that must have hit 
the zealous Saul at the deepest levels. And, and later on, after he makes his turn, you, can, you get the feeling that, that there was something about that experience that affected him. Now, he was fighting it. You know, people fight God all the time. There are t- some of us may be fighting him even now in the sense that we're trying to resist. There's things he's trying to do inside of our heart. Um, but, but I, and I can recall that there have been times where that's even been, in, there, there are times where I feel like I'm almost wrestling with God. I think Paul was wrestling with his conscience. I think Saul was at this point so angry, but part of that hatred was being fueled by some doubts he had in his own heart, things that he couldn't explain because of the way Stephen died and prayed for him. I think it bothered him, and it fueled the anger. In Acts 26, later on, he will declare, and this is way further into his life, in Acts 26, he's in front of a king named Agrippa. He's going to describe these events looking backwards. He says, you know, I want to tell you about who I am. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Hope you understand that. I was not always a follower of this Jesus that I now proclaim. He says, in fact, I, I, did, I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints, I, I shut them up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I want you to know I punished I punished them often, often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. I made them renounce their faith. And I became exceedingly, the phrase he uses, exceedingly enraged against them. In fact, I I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And then dropping down to Acts 9, just picking back up with the sort of historical narrative itself, it says in Acts 9.1, it says that meanwhile Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was so eager to kill the Lord's followers. I mean, this is a man who's raging out of control. The picture we have, the older version says he made havoc. The, 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 the King James, the original actually, even says that he laid waste to the church. I mean, this is a guy who's on a mission to eradicate in a violent way, the followers of Jesus, he either has them, will have them renounce their confession of the dead Nazarene, the shameful Nazarene, because anybody knows that no, no Messiah of ours will ever be dying like a two-bit criminal, naked on, the, on a cross. We do not believe him to be Messiah. He cannot be Messiah. This is, this is Saul. This is Saul's attitude. And you are bringing, bringing this issue up It's time for you to be dealt with. And this anger that's in the man is so evident. Look what it says. It says that he just begins to, to, uh, you know, what he says. He went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. Look at that. He found there, and he wanted to bring them, he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So you're either going to renounce him or you're coming back in chains. And he blew up homes. He killed people. There are going to be people later on in his life. He's going to be interacting with the children of parents who he had a part, a large part, in, in having them put to death. I mean, this is a, a, a very angry, hostile man. And when we look at that, it's, it's interesting because what will happen next is that we see that he is on his way to Damascus. Now, I'll just quickly put the map up for us. Damascus, which is, by the way, in the news I mean, there is a a revolution taking place in Syria right now. This city is in the middle of it all. One of the great historical cities of the ancient world, Damascus, has tremendous history. Right now, it's just a crazy place. 
But Paul, Saul at the time, was on his way to Damascus. He, there was a synagogue. There was a, a lot of a Jewish um, people who lived in Damascus, a large Jewish community, and there was a large contingent of those who were following Jesus. And he's going to go arrest them. And he's, on his, he's going to be on his way to Damascus, traveling from Jerusalem northward to Damascus. When on the road to Damascus, and it will become known as the uh, Damascus experience, on the road to Damascus, it will become a famous road because of what happens. He has this confrontation with Jesus. And he sees a vision of Christ. And he has a, a communication that turns him from being, and I would call it, you could argue this, I don't think it's an exaggeration. It, it could be argued legitimately that it was the most significant turnaround in human history. That when Paul or Saul flips because of what he says was his direct interaction with the risen Jesus, that he goes from being a historically accounted for enemy of Jesus and persecutor of the way to someone who becomes its most radical uh, uh, exponent and proponent, uh, the one who extends the church into the Gentile world and in many ways is, is responsible for a vast majority of our New Testament and becomes the preeminent spokesman for Jesus in the early century of the church. I mean, it is a stunning, stunning turnaround. It, there have been many people who've had their lives changed in dramatic ways, but the impact of this man going from the, a hunter of followers of the way to someone who becomes an advocate of the way with the type of intensity and fierce commitment he did is just it's unparalleled. Now we say that, and we're going to look at that exchange. Notice, though, notice how the early church is described. Notice how the first believers are described. It doesn't say followers of the Christian church. You know what it says? Followers of the way. And that, that's how they were known in the beginning. And I think the way was connected to what Jesus taught. You remember in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. What I want to do is I want to, under the umbrella of reflections on the way, I want to interact a couple of things. I want to talk about what the way is. And then I would like to intersect that with Saul. And at the same time, have us think about our own life with God. So I want to bring together three convergent streams and just sort of sit with it for a bit. The first thing I want to put on the board is very simple when it comes to this, this way, this Christian way. The Christian way, or the way, is built around and centered on a person. And that is Jesus. There is no question about it. Later on, Saul will have this interaction. He's on his way to get the people who are the church, Jesus will say to him, why are you persecuting me? It, but he wasn't directly persecuting Jesus, and yet Jesus says, you're persecuting me. You're going after me when you go after my people. That's what he was saying. It was a fascinating statement. But see, Jesus had made the declaration that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And he had said some things, like no one comes to the Father. The way to God is through me. It's not many ways. It's through me. That is a very intense statement. He talked about being the son of God. I mean, look, in, how do I put it this way? In Saul's mind, Jesus could not be Messiah. Therefore, and I give him credit for this, the one thing Jesus never gave us the option of is simply calling him a good man or a good teacher. That's not really an option. If we are intellectually honest, 
we must acknowledge that the one thing he said is, I cannot, you cannot just say that's who I am because he claimed to be something far more. He said, and, and his opponents knew it. Do you re, if any obje, by any objective measure, when we read the Gospels, which is essentially the history of Christ on earth, his ministry, there are clear statements he makes when he says that God, in John 3, you know, God so loved this world that he gives his only begotten son. He said, my words, they are spirit and they are life. He talked about being the entrance to the, to the, to the, the gate, through the gate. I am the gate. I am the entrance. There were times where people took up stones to stone him. And he said, why were you going to stone me? What good deed have I done? Not for the good deed you have done, but because you being a man, make yourself to be God. Statements, powerful statements. Saul of Tarsus, give him credit for this. He was under no illusions about the claims of Jesus. And in his mind, the man was a liar. Bottom line. And, no, and if you think about it, I remember when I was... Just a beginning follower of Jesus, I, uh, I was introduced to this book, a very little book that I often talk about called More Than a Carpenter by, by a man named Josh McDowell. And in this book, which is essentially a very small but concise apologetic or a, a kind of defense of the Christian worldview, one of the chapters, I remember how it made such a vivid imprint on me. It was before I ever I had ever heard of a man named C.S. Lewis, who is the, <laughs> as many of you know, went from being someone who did not believe, and this intellectual giant professor, writer, uh, just amazingly deep thinker, turns, is, becomes a follower of Jesus through a series of events. And he says that he was the most reluctant follower of Christ. I was, he says, I was literally pulled, kicking and screaming into the kingdom, which I love that. Um, but he, he, anyway, the point being, this is where it's all going back to, McDowell had a chapter that was based upon some writings from C.S. Lewis. The chapter's title was called Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. And I've never forgotten that because what he was saying was, and it's, it's, it's powerful, he says, whatever Jesus is, he cannot be just a good man or a good teacher because at the essential center of his teaching, he made statements about who he was that are either true or not true. He says he claimed to be things. If he was not the son of God and he knew it, we must call it as it is. He is a liar. If he claimed to be the son of God and he did, and he thought he was, but he wasn't, then he is a man who is deluded, at some level a lunatic, because he made claims. And then he says the one thing is this. We really don't have the option of saying, well, he's a good teacher when he was a liar. We don't really have the option of saying, well, look at all the sound things he had to say if he was deceived about the core element of his own identity. He says you really have two options, really, when he's finished with that. He either isn't who he is or he is who he is, and therefore the Lord of glory that he claimed to be and calls us to bow before him and welcome him into our life. We have, we have options, Lord, liar, or lunatic but he cannot be just a good man. It's fierce. And you know what? I give this. To Saul's credit, he says, I don't believe he was good at all. I believe he's dangerous. And the people who talk about him being Messiah, uh, they, they are advocating a lie that cannot be tolerated. Now, now listen, I'm going to take it one more step further. The Christian way, help us to try to understand it. It is, 
it is both a way of looking at the world, a worldview, and a way of being. Okay. And I guess what I'm saying, when I say worldview, it, the, the way of Jesus is a way of interpreting our world. It's, it's like God has given us a way of a lens to interpret life. So that he says, we are born in this world, and we are moving. We are at our core, spiritual beings, right? We're not just human beings. We're spiritual beings on a human journey. And that journey ends, and we have another journey to take. That at our core, we are spirit. The very breath of God at some level is ignited life. That we live in a world that, although beautiful, is yet broken. That we as human beings are broken and in need of a savior. That, that God has acted into human history and come, and he has ultimately entered into this world as was foreshadowed through the Old Testament as the only begotten Son of God to pay a price for us that we could never pay for ourselves. That he who was rich became poor, that we who were poor may be made rich. That is the good news. Christ Jesus crucified, raised up again out of the grave, the giver of life, death not the final word, life wins. Yes, there's pain and suffering in this world, but at the end of the day, we have a presence and a promise. I mean, I'm talking about the good news in a nutshell. And this is the message that we have. It's a way of looking at the world. It reminds us that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. New things happen. But at the end of the day, the word of God will prevail, Jesus said. When all is said and done, when our life is done, he's talking about a lens to live our lives out of. And in the meantime, between now and then, we have a way to live our lives. And we have a word to live by. We have words to live by. We have, if we say we love him, then we really have to, we have to contend to understand him. And I would, I would suggest that people who claim to know him need to put in the time we do to try to be able to articulate why we believe what we believe and to be able to know his words and have them settled into our own heart, that we are to be able to interpret our culture through the lens of our Christian life, that, that there is something that, that we are to be able to have to explain, the reason of the hope that is within us. That these are important principles, that, that if we are called not to just simply be surface followers, but disciples, committed followers, that we are to throw our heart into it if we believe it. Jesus talked about this. The two greatest things we can ever do in this life, he said, is not the accumulation of possessions that we cannot be kept, but to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love people, love your neighbor, especially those closest to us, I would, I would suggest, as yourself. This is it. Loving God, loving people. In this, the law is summarized. Deeply true words coming out of the mouth of Jesus, affirming the words of, of, of God that have been, as Jesus said, from the beginning. But it's not, listen, loved ones, it's not just a worldview. It's not just... It, it, just a way of believing something, as valuable as it is. It's also a way of being. The way is a way of being. What do I mean by that? It it, what I'm saying is it's got to show up. It's got to show up in our words. It's got to show up in our work. It's got to show up in our critical relationships. It's got to show up in our love for people. Jesus said, let your light, you hear me quote this all the time. It's one of the more, the more important scriptures for me. Let your light so shine before people, before men, that they may see your good works, the goodness of your life, and seek to glorify God and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That they will be irresistibly, at some level, people will be affected by the goodness and the consistency and genuineness of our faith that would, at some level, draw them towards an openness towards Jesus and an openness towards God. This is the way we are to pursue life. Don't hide your life, Jesus said, light under a, under a basket. Don't keep it in a place that can never be seen. It's, 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 it's got to get out there. 
He says, you are a city set upon a hill. Wow. You can see from a distance. It's there. That's a very challenging word from the Lord if you think about it because what he was saying was don't just live it only in a, in a private way. Seek to be, listen, listen, a, a public, seek to live publicly for me. Now, how to do that, here's the key though. I'm going to say it's not just believing the right things. I mean, I, I, I need to point this out. There's a tremendous amount of damage that has been done because people who've claimed to know him and love him and believe all the right things have, have we, we, we don't always live it, live it. And that brings tremendous damage. I can tell you this. I talk to people all the time just by virtue of my role all the time who've been deeply damaged by hypocrisy inside their homes and or what they've witnessed. And so part of what they're having to work through in following Jesus is the disconnect that was modeled. And that's real hurt. That's genuine. That's honest words. We impact people. We really impact little ones a lot. But just people we work with, people we're around. It's not about being perfect. And I'm not, I'm not I mean, none of us are going to get this thing ever completely. But it is about seeking to live an authentic, loving, growing life with God that seeks to live out what we say we believe. So it's going to require uh, us to really think about what, what, what it looks like to follow our leader, Jesus. Because Jesus did not just give us concepts. He did give us doctrines and teachings and truths, but he modeled for us how to live, how to love, how to walk the blessed life. He showed us how to love one another. He taught the disciples that in his final moments, he was still teaching. He got down while they were arguing. He started washing their feet. One of the most powerful lessons ever recorded was so powerful because while they're arguing, he's doing the, the most menial job in the room and saying, this is, this is have, you, have you already forgotten everything I've modeled for you? Cut it out. It's powerful. It's powerful when you think about it. And he shows us that we are to be a people who walk, walk in a way where we, we are to seek to love uh, those who despise us. Faith needs works behind it, or otherwise the Bible says it's dead as a grave. That right belief without right love is like a, a, a clanging cymbal. And so I'm, I'm not saying one to the exclusion of the other. I'm saying both. I'm saying that we are to be people who seek to live deeply rooted with, with thoughtfulness and seriousness about what we say we believe. How do we, how do, are we studying his words? Are his words in us? Are we rooted and grounded? And is there an abounding vitality to our life? This is what God wants. There's a great verse in Colossians 2. It says this, and I just, just, we'll just put that up there. Paul would write this, by the way, later on. He says, you therefore have received, as you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. And if you think about this, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding, look at that, abounding with thanksgiving, in it with thanksgiving. Look at the two words, rooted and abounding, rooted and abounding. The idea of something that is fixed and strong and stable and deep, not surfacey, but it's got substance to it. Something is rooted. I see trees periodically pulled up out of the ground. You can see that they look like they were really strong, but they actually didn't have a strong root system. But there are some trees that underneath the surface, they're taller than the tree outside. 
And, and, and to pull it up is no easy thing. It can endure things. It's fixed, strong, steadfast. It's rooted. He's saying that's how we want your faith to be. Planted deeply. Deeply planted into my words. They are spirit and they are life. At the same time, abounding with a kind of overall gratitude that characterizes our life. That allows us to get past the inevitable hurts and offenses and disappointments that come our way. And to do it in a way that it still has something of the love of God and the life of God and the vitality of God in it. To we become like what the great psalmist said when he opens up the Psalms in Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man, blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. They're thinking about how, who they're living their lives with. He says, blessed is that one. But their delight is in the law, the words of the Lord. And in those words, they meditate day and night. They are interspersed into their life, not just sectioned off to a, an hour, but they're a part of my life. And that person, the day and night, and, and they will be like a, he says, this is what that person will be like, a tree planted by the rivers of water with deep roots. It brings forth its fruit in its season. Sleep also doesn't wither. It starts talking about the vital life in God, the deep-rooted life in God, the abounding life in God. And I would argue every season has fruits to bear that are going to affect people. And I'm, I'm contending. And now, the last thing I'll say about it is this, and this connects all the way back to Paul. And it is this. The, the Christian way is also, if we can put it this way, it is a happy way. And it's a joy-filled way. I was, uh, I was reminded of something that Dallas Willard wrote in his, I think it was The Divine Conspiracy, another book that I really love. And he says, he's fond of saying this. He says, you know what? Jesus was, at his core, a happy man. When people saw Jesus coming, they didn't say, oh, wow, there comes the dour, sour, (laughs) or let's hide from him because our lives are no good. He's coming. I don't want him to see me. And I think that, I think that people didn't, they didn't say, okay, it's time to stop having fun because Jesus is coming. I, I, the, the point Willard makes is that whenever he went there, people seemed to be blessed and he was, there was a joy. And that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean everything was always, <laughs> he had disappointment. <laughs> it doesn't mean he suffered. But there was an essential joy to Jesus. Can you hear me? Saul was not a happy man. He was intellectually vigorous. He was religiously zealous, but he was also very angry. And that is not a good combination, by the way. You combine those three things, intellectual force, religious zealotry, and deep-seated anger, you get a lot of damage. That's what Saul was. And years later, you know, and I think about this, I still see people who, who we struggle with anger. And it comes out. And it, sometimes it comes out in self-destructive ways. Sometimes it comes out in explosive ways. Sometimes it comes out in subtle ways. But that kind of destructive anger is not, the, is not what God wants to see ever dominate our life been around people who didn't know how to express their fear and so they came out in anger but it was really just fear 
And one of the things the Lord wants to do is he wants to teach us how to be truly alive with him and to be like him. I think about Saul, and I think about the way in which Jesus transformed his life as the years went by. On the other side of his life, on the other side of the Damascus Road, on the other side of his confrontation with, and transformation by Jesus, he would become a very different type of man. In fact, one of his letters, no, look, he would always be, a, you know, highly, uh, 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 he would always be, what, intense. He would always be passionate. He would always be a deep thinker. But there was also another side of him that began to emerge as Jesus got a hold of his life. And he says, you know, I'm a trophy for Jesus. He said, I, I was a man who, who really, if it was just based on who's qualified, I would have never made it, ever, ever. Because you know why? Because I'm not even worthy. I'm, I am the chief of sinners. He says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. I think you understand that. He says, God chose me from the bottom of the bottom. I have killed people who loved him. I, if he can forgive me, then there is no one. You hear what he's saying? No one. He cannot forgive and change. And nothing that cannot be dislodged. When we have a real experience with the risen Jesus, things can change in dramatic ways. Sometimes that change is all at once, and sometimes it is a little at a time as the years go by. But before long, we look in the mirror, and for the most part, we see a different type of person. And hopefully it's a growing person who is learning how to live life well for the glory of God. Loving well, growing well. Later on, he'll write a letter to the church at Philippi. And that letter is just dominated by the idea of joyfulness. And there's a tenderness to it and a joy that he advocates, even in his suffering at the time he's imprisoned and he's encouraging them. His joy ends up so overwhelming his life that he could even be in the worst situation the most dire of circumstances, suffering physically, which is really hard for me to suffer physically and be joyful. And he is a man who, by the time God's done with him, he's, he has so much real, real joy inside of his soul, and so much deep, genuine gratitude that he's able to encourage other people when he himself is suffering. And I've witnessed some of that. It's one of the things that I've most admired by people who follow Jesus is when I see the reality of their joyfulness showing up in the midst of their adversity. And it sometimes shames me to say, Lord, be merciful to me, your servant, and correct my attitude when it's not going my way. Let your joy be real in me. And as Paul will say at the end of the day in, in Philippians 4.4, he will say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say to you, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we bring to you ourselves with all of our flaws, idiosyncrasies, habits, willfulness, sins of past and present ever before us, like David said. The hurts we're working through, damage we've witnessed, but at the end of the day, Lord, I know you're calling us not to live in naive ways, not to live in blinded ways, but to still live as much as we can 
in you the joyful, happy life. And I, I, I pray that you would remind us, Lord, that spirituality is not joylessness. It's joyfulness. And following you is a way of joy, for you are a happy man. And you showed us how to live life. And I just pray that you'd bless the closing minutes. You know, bless the passion of the song that we're closing with and let it be a, a really good benediction. In its simplicity, let it be a good benediction for us. And bless our time of giving as many of us honor you faithfully in our first fruits and our giving of our tithes and our offerings. But I want to pray your blessing over every one of us. I pray your blessing over a spirit and over soul and over our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. soul and over